Welcome to the Trinity Grace Church Tribeca podcast. At Trinity Grace Church, our mission is to help New Yorkers grow in love by practicing the way of Jesus for the good of our city. If you're interested in Trinity Grace Church Tribeca, check out our website at tgctribeca.com where you can learn more about us and learn about ways that you can help support our church and this podcast. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook to see and hear what's going on in our community. Thank you for joining us today and welcome grace and peace to you. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, and there we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows, there we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs, and our tormentors asked for mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem's fall, how they said, tear it down, tear it down, down to its foundations. O daughter Babylon, you devastator, happy shall they be who pay you back what you have done to us. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. And now if you could rise for the reading of the gospel text. This is Luke 17, 1 through 6. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. The word of the Lord. You can be seated. Before I uh, offer my reflection this morning, I'd invite you to uh, a practice of paying attention and being present, fully present. Um, this morning, as we sit here, you bring uh, lots of thoughts and energy and emotion into the room and the week's experiences, the things that you carry with you. Uh, some of them are heavy. Some of them make your heart sing. But whatever you bring, we just invite you to bring your full self into this place and into this moment and simply pay attention to what God might be saying or doing in your life. Um, and so we just invite you to the practice of quiet, opening your heart to God, opening your heart to each other and to this moment uh, in the presence of God. So just a short moment of quiet, and as best as you know how, with whatever you bring into the room, lots of faith, lots of doubt, just bring your your honest self to this moment.
God, give us help as we think about uh, this text in connection with our lives and as we think about our lives in this city. We pray for fresh imagination. We pray for spiritual energy and fervor and courage. And God, we pray for a sense of your joy and love in our hearts. We pray that in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, amen. Since last week, we saw what uh, some have dubbed the hug seen around the world. Amber Geiger in Dallas on trial for the murder of Botham Jean. In the course of the trial, uh, Botham's brother, Brant, requests permission to walk across the courtroom and to embrace his brother's killer in a hug. This hug uh, was like shots fired online. Uh, there were people responding in many different ways. It was as if this moment revealed some of the fault lines that exist right now in American thinking about race and about justice and about mercy and revenge and what's appropriate or what's good for our world and for our communities. Uh, in the face of that, I was left uh, somewhat bewildered and confused and I found myself asking afresh, what do I think about these things? What does our tradition teach us about these things? And what does this new cultural moment demand of us or maybe enlighten us in? And I uh, was looking mostly not for, uh, uh, as I was thinking of my own sort of reflections, I was looking for resources on others or how they were thinking about this. Uh, and then I, I found a, a, a sort of essay written by one of my friends and colleagues in the city, uh, Pastor Rich Villadas uh, in Queens. And upon seeing this embrace and looking at the reactions, you know, some saying this, uh, this embrace is premature, that it uh, belittles the crime, that it uh, is just one more extension of white supremacy that uses like a religious system to control responses, uh, the power of a white person's tears and so forth. Uh, basically saying, we're being too easy on them. And then the other side saying, this is refreshing, this is wonderful, this is beautiful, this is moving, uh, this is pure and good, and some even saying, this reflects the essence of the Christian faith. And Rich asks the question in his essay, is there another way to think about this? Is there a way to, to process this experience that validates the, the, the concerns on the one hand, that are saying this is too easy, too quick, uh, not enough. It's not uh, emphasizing the concerns of the community that was harmed here. And at the same time, validates the rich tradition of grace and mercy and forgiveness as our basic orientation as followers of Jesus. And with that, we enter into this story of our gospel a story that's filled with images, images of millstones and mustard seeds, of mulberry trees and of raging seas. It's a story that begins with an ominous warning. Jesus says, there are little ones at stake. This is so fresh for us, having dedicated a little one ourselves this morning. 
Little ones are at stake, and they're being caused to stumble. Jesus is observing this. He's seeing this. And he gets, we get this unforgettable image from Jesus in response. He says, it's better to have a millstone tied around your neck and then to be thrown into the sea than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Now, I don't think Jesus is making a literal threat here. I have, after all, seen a millstone. Uh, I went on a field trip with my daughter Lucy into the Hudson Valley at a farm, and we watched this, this stone grind the grain into uh, essentially flour. And we, uh, I was taking that stone and imagining as Jesus was talking what that would mean to be thrown into the sea with something as heavy and as large as a millstone tied around uh, my body. And I was wondering, what is Jesus saying here? What does this image mean? I think it's clearly not literal. I mean, I don't think Jesus is, is threatening torture here. It doesn't vibe or match with anything that Jesus has said or done up to this point. I think instead what Jesus is doing, he's offering us a picture, a picture of the sea which in Hebrew thought and imagination indicated violence and chaos. And he's using that image of, of the sea, and he's putting us a, a picture together of people being weighed down and sort of trapped in the midst of that chaotic and raging sea with no possibility of coming out of it. And I think essentially he's saying, we are handing on something to our children, and it's anchoring us in this chaotic cycle of wreaking havoc on us. Or perhaps it's saying that we need to take this kind of thinking that causes us to stumble, that immerses us in the sea of violence and chaos with no way out, that we need to take that way of thinking and drown it. In any case, we ask, I think at this point, what is this cycle? What is this force that has its grip on us? Uh, what is this spell that binds us? And I think we get a clue in the emphasis that follows. So Jesus is, uh, has just given them this image, given them this warning about not letting the little ones stumble, and then he urges them towards something. And what is that something? He says, essentially, we need courage. We need courage for two things. We need the courage in our lives if this thinking that causes us to stumble will be drowned or if we will ever emerge out of that raging sea of chaos and violence. We need two things, the courage to forgive and we need the courage to confront. To quote Jesus, he says, so watch yourselves. If your brother or your sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, Forgive them, even if they sin against you seven times in a day, and seven times they come back to you saying, I repent. You must forgive them. Now, the disciples here, hearing this, they're on the brink. Do you hear that in their voices? Perhaps they're floored at the prospect of confrontation. They're overwhelmed at what that will demand of them. Perhaps they're enraged at the idea of forgiveness and they see it as perhaps cheap and not worthy of the injustice done in certain memories or instances in their mind. 
But in either case, they proclaim together, in the gospel it says, the apostles say to the Lord, increase our faith. In other words, they look at this teaching, they look at this urging on Jesus' part toward forgiveness, toward confrontation, and they say, we don't have it, we don't have what it takes. We don't have enough. We don't have what it is required for this. We're outweighed, we're outskilled, we're outmatched in the face of this. But Jesus replies in a very peculiar way. Jesus says, in essence, that they have everything they need. He replies, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Now, we've heard this before. Before I get into this, we've heard this before, I want to share with you just briefly my own relationship to this text. I, re I recall volunteering at a, a youth ministry retreat um, program. And uh, I was, you know, on a bus with a bunch of teenagers, and we're going to this retreat center. We get to the retreat center, and I find uh, my room. Thankfully, I was uh, by myself. Um, and uh, I, I get settled in my room, and there is nothing. It's like a completely unplugged retreat. And all we had was our Bibles and our journals. And, um, you know, at this point, I was an aspiring, holy college student. Um, I really, really was serious about my faith. Uh, so serious, my friends were like, you're bumming me out, man. Like, you're always reading, you're like taking the biblical languages right now, you're always flaunting it, and I was a pain in the rear end to be around, believe me. But I was just so obsessed with understanding the faith and, and sort of mastering it and, 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 and getting to the core of it and the bottom of it and bringing all my questions to it. And part of that was just a commitment to reading the Bible like crazy. So I had a moment. And uh, I was by myself at my desk. I opened the Bible, the Gospel of Matthew, and I find a parallel text to this text, this morning's Gospel. And it's Jesus saying, if you have faith of the mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, be thrown into the sea, and it will obey you. <laughs> and I don't know what I had in my mind at the time. I had like sort of Luke Skywalker in my mind. Like if I just believe enough I can sort of make the rocket ship, you know, emerge out of the, the dark swamp and, uh, and do my bidding. Or maybe like Eleven and Stranger Things, where if I just will it, if I, I have some kind of force to be able to do something, like taking Jesus hyper-literally, no one had taught me any better. And I remember in that room, sitting and looking at the light and thinking, turn off. And you know what? It didn't. <laughs> and that was the beginning of me wrestling with, what is Jesus getting at here? Like, I tried to take this seriously. I mustered every bit of faith. Certainly, I was using more faith than a mustard seed at that moment. The veins bulging in the side of my head showed it. But we've seen this before. Jesus here says, if you take this, say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and thrown into the sea, it will obey you. There was another instance that the gospel writers talk about where Jesus is walking on his way to Jerusalem and he sees this fig tree and he basically curses the fig tree. He says, you know, you were, you were made for a certain kind of fruit to bear fruit and you're not bearing fruit and he curses it. And the next day the disciples are walking with him. They see the tree again and now it's withered and they're amazed. And that's when Jesus says, if you say to this mountain, now what is this mountain? 
Jesus is right there on the brink of Jerusalem. I've been to uh, the area surrounding Jerusalem, the, the city proper, where there are many trees, uh, fig trees. And Jesus most certainly is looking at Mount Zion, you know, the city of God, Jerusalem, where the Temple Mount exists. And he says, if you say to this mountain, be thrown into the sea, it will obey you. And this is the beginning with the disciples of a wrestling, of going, what is Jesus getting at here? I think what, we're, what we learn as, we, as the Gospels unfold is that Jesus is putting his finger on a problem with the way humans process life and the way humans process information. He had seen this tree that was meant to bear fruit, and it didn't, and he cursed it, and it was withered. And it's his way of saying this tree is bankrupt. Israel and Israel's calling is bankrupt. And maybe his disciples, and maybe we who read the Gospels, think of another tree. The tree in the beginning of our story, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It seems human beings at our core have always gravitated toward a very uh, a strong sense of control over morality, over justice, over what is right and what is wrong, and how we define it and how we deal with it. And our story has showed us from the beginning that this challenge has been too much for humans to wield. That it not only consumes us, but it destroys us. And so we find in sort of the, the evolution of human history, human beings taking this, this issue of what is good and what is evil and how do we deal with it and what do we do about it, and they begin making sacrifices making sacrifices of their virgin daughters, sacrifices of their firstborn children, and eventually it gets humanized a little bit, and then we begin offering animals to the gods or to a god that we've never seen, but we all fear. And over time, this way of dealing with good and evil, this way of, of finding something at the heart of the problem gets rubbed into human consciousness to the point where we're saying, Whenever there's a problem, whenever there's a violation of our sense of good, somebody has to pay. Something, somebody or something has to die. Some blood has to be spilled in order to make this sort of calculus work. Until we get to the point in our story where Jesus shows up. And here we have a God who we can now see. A God who has these words on his lips, do not be afraid. A God who says multiple times through the gospel stories, go and learn what this means. He quotes a prophet and he says, in the words of God, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And so Jesus, in essence, is saying, you can say to this mountain, which represents all of the human projections of how we should deal with good and evil that has ultimately driven a hard line around the good and put the evil out there and said, when you violate the good, you belong out or you need to be put out or someone or something needs to be put out in your place. And we projected that onto God. And Jesus comes along and says, you're missing the heart of our tradition. You're missing the heart of, of what's been revealed to the prophets you're missing the heart, which is God desires mercy, not sacrifice. 
This way of when you feel violated that you've got to sacrifice someone has got to go. It's not bearing fruit. It deserves to be cursed. It deserves to be thrown into the sea and drowned. And so Jesus, I think, is constantly posing this to his disciples, and it's such a stretch for them. It's such a, a, a challenge to them. What do you mean? Like everything they know, they're, all their good and holy and moral instincts are to say, that's good and that's right, that system. They're a lot like you know, all the, the stories like Home Alone or The Sandlot that teach us and, and really warn us not to take our fears and project them on an unknown other. And it turns out humanity's been doing this for ages. Only we've been doing it toward God. And Jesus says, it's not what God's like. He'd say in other places, God causes the rain and the sun to shine and to comfort and refresh the righteous and the unrighteous or the just and the unjust alike. God shows no discrimination in God's mercy. And yet, we have a rich tradition of God being just, fighting for the oppressed, fighting for the marginalized, confronting the evildoers. And now we get back to the essence, I think, of what Jesus is teaching here and the invitation for us. That what we are invited to as followers of Jesus, and when we think of a situation like this hug seen around the world, what is our response? What is our obligation? What's our responsibility? Jesus says we are meant to confront and to forgive. To confront and to forgive. Jesus doesn't just say forgive. He, sa he actually says, if someone sins against you, rebuke them. Point it out. Tell the truth. In other parts of the Bible, we get like ways to do that. Do it with gentleness. Do it reflecting on yourself first, Paul would say in Galatians 6. Lest you also stumble. But Jesus knows there is this sickness that we have that we are passing on to our children and this cycle is going over and over and it has to be drowned it has to be stopped radical action has to be taken and I think this kind of teaching gives us clarity for a moment like we're facing today where we have an impulse toward justice on the one hand and we also have an impulse toward grace on the other we have no idea how to reconcile these in real time and I think as we consider what it means to forgive, my brother and colleague Rich Philodos gives us some wisdom for how to walk these difficult right lines and ropes. Rich, in his uh, essay, basically says, uh, he refers to a book that he read about not forgiving too soon. And he, he basically says that in this, from this book, there are stages, almost like stages of grief that we go through when we are wronged, when we are hurt. We go through things like denial. We distance ourselves from the pain and we just move on and we neglect to tend to the hurt. Uh, we go through times of rage and anger. We go through phases of bargaining, like I will maybe forgive them if they meet these conditions. And eventually, to forgive properly, we have to come to a place of acceptance. We accept what happened, we accept it, its reality, we accept the circumstances, and then we are able to offer as a gift this thing we call forgiveness. But what is forgiveness? I, I've been in church context, I mean, I've been in uh, other forums where forgiveness is talked about, and it is and does sound kind of cheap. 
To forgive means, in some cases, for some people, to bear no consequence. That all is gone. The price has been paid, and it's as if you never sinned. Do, you, do you ever, anybody ever get that, that definition of forgiveness? As if I never sinned. And yet, I think forgiveness is more complicated than that. Forgiveness is, in the words of Rich Villadas, and I love this definition, it creates an inner freedom from allowing the wound inflicted from another to be the primary and permanent point of reference from which we relate to the world. I'll say it again. The act of forgiveness creates inner freedom from allowing the wound inflicted from another to be the primary and permanent point of reference from which we relate to the world. Now, what I love about this is that it's, it frames forgiveness as an inner liberation, a setting free, rather than giving someone free rent in our imaginations where we're looping over and over the wrong that was done to us. And we fall into that cycle and that trap. Um, it, it gives us the ability to be free of it. Now, there are many open questions, like how quickly can we come to a place like that? And uh, what can we expect of each other in the midst of this? I remember we had uh, Ro uh, our friend Roby, who is a mother who lost a child in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We had her on this stage, and I interviewed her, and we talked about forgiveness, and she was adamant. Forgiveness is a gift. It must be a gift. It cannot be an obligation. If it's an obligation, it short-circuits the whole thing. It short-circuits the whole process. It does, in that case, become an extension of some power structure that weighs down on us and manipulates or coerces us towards some action that might benefit someone who has a level of power. It has to be free. And so when it comes to, at this moment in time, when there are wrongs and when there are hurts, I think it's on us to give patience to one another, to let people go through the phases and the cycles of pain and hurt and rage and wounding and hold out hope that forgiveness is still possible. That we can release ourselves and another from that dark sickness that needs to be drowned, that sickness of retaliation, of revenge, and of retribution. I want you to consider the way forgiveness is different than retribution. I know many people think of forgiveness as uh, just canceling out justice. That where there's forgiveness, there can be no justice or no demand for justice. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't mean you forget. Forgiveness doesn't mean there aren't consequences. Forgiveness doesn't mean that there aren't boundaries and trust that needs to be earned back over time. Forgiveness doesn't mean the lack of any of those things. It's not in, in opposition to any of those things. But what does forgiveness do? It changes the shape and the tone of all the things I just listed. You know, when I have the sting of pain in my heart and it boils almost like, a, like a, a, a sickness that I can't get rid of, when it consumes me, then all of my energy around someone else's consequence, all of my energy around a boundary, all of my energy around a memory is fueled by a desire for revenge and retribution. But when we have been able to work our way to forgiveness of releasing someone and releasing ourselves from that sense of retaliation and revenge and retribution 
then when we go to set boundaries and when we go to work for justice and when we go to, to determine what appropriate consequences should ensue, we now are not fueled by the harm of our enemy or the harm of the one who's done the hurt, but for their good. We now, forgiveness puts us in a position to use those tools for someone's good, not just to pay them back. And so I think that sense of justice and that demand for justice remains intact. We can still and should still pursue consequences that are meaningful and proportionate to things that have been done. But we don't do that for our own fix. We do that for their good and for the good of the world, to, to restrain or maybe curb evil that could get out and spill out into our world. It's the difference between retributive justice on the one hand and restorative justice on the other. And this is why I know a lot of us have the impulse that Jesus commanded to rebuke. We're all about the rebuke. And this can be if it violates our sort of holiness standards or our justice standards, whatever your standards are, when those get violated, you want some blood. You want to see it made right. You want someone to pay. That is the confrontational spirit. And Jesus knows that you cannot confront someone for their good and for the good of the world unless you're able to get to a place of forgiveness as well. And once you're able to forgive, even up to seven times a day, as Jesus said, then we're released from revenge. We're released from retaliation. And we can maybe even walk across the aisle and hug the one who has caused us so much pain. Now, I'm not the judge, and I have no idea whether or not uh, you know, that Brant came to that conclusion too quickly, or if he had adequately processed, or whatever, but I think our tradition and our teaching has always taught us to be very slow to judge on these things, to remain humble, not to overreach like Eve did in the garden, and try to take control of justice or take control of morality, but to have the open hand and to say, these things are very difficult. In the words of, uh, you know, it all comes back to Lord of the Rings eventually for me, <laughs> but in the words of uh, Gandalf to Frodo, don't be so quick to deal out death and judgment. Though even the very wise cannot see all angles. And who are you? Can you give it to them? I leave it to the people who've been hurt and to their communities to counsel them. I leave it to our tradition to wrestle with. But I think we all need a little more slowness to judgment in these matters. And perhaps we can let Jesus' teaching and the tension of that teaching that maybe can get us out of this cycle of retribution and revenge and yet not make it cheap at the same time. Maybe we can take that to heart and wrestle with it and say, what does this mean for me? What does this mean to how I relate to people in my life who've hurt me or who've offended me? How can I get to a place and move through these stages to get to a place of releasing myself and them so that now all the energy of whatever needs to happen, boundaries, consequences, or a hug, that that can be done for the good of my enemy, the good of my brother or sister, and for the good of our world. Let's pray that God's good news the good news that Jesus comes to reveal, that God loves us, that God embraces us, that God has mercy on us, and also tells the truth to us, that that can be 
our reality more and more. In the words of the disciples, Lord, give us faith. Give us faith. And we might hear the words in this table. If you just have the faith of a mustard seed, you can say to this tree, go and be drowned in the ocean. You have what you need. Let us learn to access it in faith. Amen.